0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb and I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are going to be wading into the murky pool of immortality and, and the deep waters that lie beyond that's right, and since we just celebrated Chinese New Year, and we are now officially in the year of the rooster, the fire rooster, mm-hmm. uh, it seemed appropriate to focus in on Chinese immortality, because certainly immortality is uh, is big business uh, for us humans, and any myth cycle that you find is going to have a few immortals jumping around in there. A few. There's usually a lot. Isn't oh, yeah, there? yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a few. A lot. You're going to have some. Some undying heroes, gods, demigods, etc., you know, wailing on each other, uh, having a lot of emotions about their undying state, that sort of thing. And there's just each each culture, each myth cycle is going to have a pretty rich uh, history of this in there, and as well as their own uh, mix of universal ideas and individual cultural ideas regarding uh life uh, undying. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to look at the
1: diversity of the ideas of transcending death, but like what what they all remain uh or what they all have in common, I guess. Yeah. Uh so all over the world you see ideas about the survival of death or about ways that one could prolong one's life indefinitely. Um and and there's so many details that change, like do you do you survive death in some kind of immaterial state? Mhm. Do you go to a different place or do you stay in the same place? Are there beings that naturally live forever or do they have to do something to sustain their immortality? You know, do you have to eat the fruit of of uh, continued existence? And uh, I don't know. I, I love that there, there are all these little fruits that grow off the tree of the idea of immortality that are very different and various. But the thing you've always got there is that.
0: You don't want to stop being there in your mind. Right. Yeah. It's I mean, it's just part of being human. It, I, our earliest recorded stories. You can go back to the epic of Gilgamesh in there. There are uh, there's a the plot line there about the quest for immortality. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, we're going to focus in on Chinese mythology. Right. And when I say focus, focus is maybe a poor word because Chinese mythology is a uh, is a is a big tent. Uh, And we'll get into into that uh, as we go here. But uh, but the Chinese treatments uh, on the idea uh, definitely have this mix of like universal ideas concerning uh, living forever, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as some uniquely Chinese ideas. We also want to. You know, drive home here that, uh, you know, we know we have a number of Chinese listeners out there or listeners who grew up amid uh, Chinese culture. So certainly feel free to chime in on any of this. I always love to hear from folks on, on this topic and you help clarify things with your experience and provide specific takes on traditions and and tales that are often you know quite varied across the vast time and space of Chinese culture. Right. Now, first of all, we should probably just take another step back from the specifics of Chinese culture and just talk about again about why we are so obsessed with immortality. Yeah, uh,
1: I I guess that's a good thing to do. Like what what is this concept? Because immortality is not something that is necessarily found in nature. So why is it such an obsession? Uh, I, I guess maybe I could frame it like this. I'm going to ask a stupid question. Okay. I like doing this on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Ask a stupid question, because a lot of the ideas that I find most interesting somehow start from intentionally asking a stupid question. And here it is. Why do we want to keep living? Why do all animals have what appears to be an overwhelming desire not to die? Part of the answer is going to be obvious, of course, right? So if you think about the evolutionary basis for behaviors and drives that we have, one of the most basic drives we have is for reproduction, of course, Mm -hmm. but pretty much all the other ones are based around survival. Yeah. So genes that lead an organism to have more descendants are going to flourish in the gene pool. And so organisms that do not desire strongly to survive seem like prima facie to uh, be likely to have fewer descendants. You're just not going to spread those genes that say don't care about living and dying uh, around very much because a certain amount of survival is necessary for reproduction. But note that I say a certain amount because here's something I, I I was just thinking about this last night. Many animals reach an age of peak reproductive fitness, after which even if they survive, their ability to reproduce approaches zero, So from an evolutionary basis, how come we don't lose our will to survive after we've passed childbearing age? Or how come we don't lose our will to survive if we've suffered, uh, say, injury to our reproductive organs or something like that that prevents us from passing our genes along? What would be the evolutionary incentive for selecting genes that make us desire to just keep on living, going on and on and on, even in old age, desiring to just extend indefinitely into the future? Uh, I'm not sure, but I I think that's interesting. I guess there there are a few ideas. Maybe there's the idea that uh, children with surviving grandparents have greater uh, reproductive fitness because they're adult caregivers. They've got more adult caregivers, basically, if you've got grandparents, great-grandparents and all that. Uh, But here's another anomaly to think about. For complex mammals like humans, the desire for extended life doesn't just reside in the brain, but it applies specifically to the mind rather than the body. Hmm. And this is so that seems obvious like, well, yeah, of course it would. You know, your mind is the thing that's thinking. But think about this again from a biological perspective. So imagine a, a little weird illustration. You're lying in bed tonight, Robert. And okay. the robots come for you. The robot sorcerers come and seize you out of your bed. Uh, and these are robot sorcerers that uh, delight in putting humans in weird dilemmas. And so they give you two options. You've got option A, which is that your brain is going to be destroyed and an artificially intelligent computer imposter will be implanted in your former head and then will live out its days controlling your body with all normal function intact as if it were still you.
0: Okay, I'm not crazy about that option, but no. let's hear what the the next one is.
1: Option B is that your body will be destroyed, but your brain will be inserted into a vat atop one of those Boston Dynamics Darpa robots, you know, so the, the wandering around on the on the logs and stuff. Uh where you can live out your days as a brain in a vat
0: in a robot body. Robert, which one do you pick? Well, these are both horrible choices because they they both hinge on the, the, the fallacy that that the mind is separate from the body and that we don't have a, a mind body uh, unity.
1: Oh, OK. Well, but I'm saying you, you're so you, you wouldn't you wouldn't prefer your consciousness remain
0: intact on the robot. Um, I mean, is the is if the robot brain goes into my body, is it going to is it going to raise my kid for me? Let's say it would. Okay, then I'll go with that. Like I would rather, as it's, it's long as it, the, the the new robot me cannot tell anybody that I actually died. It <laughs> has to just keep going, doing its thing, continue, you know, keeping up with my responsibilities. Uh, yeah and uh, and keep everybody happy around me.
1: Well, you could also keep up with your responsibilities as a brain in a robot body. Yeah, that's
0: just going to upset everybody though. <laughs> Nobody wants okay. that
1: at at, uh, at at Christmas dinner. That is a beautiful answer Robert, <laughs> but I sincerely believe that is not the answer most people would actually choose. Really, most people would choose the vat. I think you would, huh. yeah, as opposed to having your consciousness destroyed. I've just read too many
0: horror stories about like brains in like MEGO brain canisters <laughs> and whatnot, so. I think even if it
1: is an exceedingly cruddy robot body, I think most people would choose to have their consciousness preserved in a robot body as opposed to have their body continue to do things but their consciousness destroyed.
0: Okay, fair enough. Uh,
1: it, it might not be immediately clear why that's odd, but think about it in the same terms as the uh, past reproductive age example. In option A, the imposter AI living in your body could still reproduce. Option B, cannot. Uh, So uh, your answer there is probably the more biologically intuitive one. But I think the answer that I feel confident most people would actually give if really faced by these robot sorcerers, uh, that, that doesn't really make biological sense. So why does your mind generally prefer its own survival to the survival of the body that houses it? And the genes that created it. I don't know. To me, that's a weird conundrum. And you can see this uh, instantiated in many beliefs about immortality that people have, where they uh, continue to believe that their minds will go on existing after death, even after their bodies are destroyed, and there's uh, no continued possibility of reproduction.
0: Huh. Well, I mean, I guess it comes back to I, I think therefore I am, right? If I am not conscious of my existence, I don't exist. My, my, and therefore my consciousness is my existence, even if it's completely extracted from every other important aspect of existence. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly experientially clear to me why I would prefer the con, the survival of my consciousness. Right. Uh, but from a third party point of view, if an alien just came down and looked at people making that choice, it, it's not obvious why they would be doing that. Hmm. Uh So anyway, I, I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, another side note I wanted to go down, uh th- this might be a tangent, but I, I also want to say that not everyone in history has expressed the view that it's good to desire to live forever. Uh Just one example I wanted to think of was the uh, influential 20th century philosopher Martin Heidegger, who famously, he had this whole logic of the relationship between authentic existence and the acceptance of death. And in this system... Basically, a person's life is given meaning by the fact of its finitude. Uh, the fact that a person can exist in time, finitely in time, and then not exist at a later time, gives life the possibility of a definite, authentic character. And th- that kind of makes sense to me, right? Like, if, if you live forever and you always
0: have the potential to change, who are you? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like um, the, the difference between, say, having... A free hour on a given day to, uh, you know, engage in your hobbies or, you know, or what have you, or a chore around the house, versus Mm -hmm. having the full open day. Right now, people's approach to this are going di- to going to differ. But my approach has, uh, my experience has often been that if I only have an hour, I'm going to be more inclined to make the best out of that hour. And if by some miracle having an entire day, then it's 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 likely to be this unstructured, uh, uh just bout of unproductivity.
1: But it's even worse than that from my point of view because think about. uh all of the things that make you you, all the things that make you Robert Lamb, mm-hmm. uh, they're all expressions, I would say, of choices you make given the finitude of time and resources. The yeah. fact that like you are who you are partly because of which books you've read. And which books you've read, uh, that's just one aspect of your character, obviously, not mm-hmm. everything, is as a function of the fact that you don't have time to read all books that exist in the world. Right, yeah. You have to
0: pick and choose. And yeah. then this is a this is actually a, a good point because also the the books one has read changes. The books one remembers changes. Right. The books that one puts stock in, that too changes and therefore the expression of self is continually transforming. Yeah. Um this is something we'll get into a bit when we when we look at the particular Chinese models here because this is this is the thing, right? When we when we talk about living forever, there's there's this classic idea of of living forever is also eternal youth. I'm going to be young forever. I'm right. going to be this idealized version of myself forever. Whereas Which wouldn't really be you
1: as you, the person who lives for a finite amount of time.
0: Yeah, that doesn't doesn't match up with the human experience. Like, either you would be an inhuman thing, this, like, like, basically like a robot version of me that acts like like current uh-huh. me forever never reads any new books uh, never so- <laughs> forgets any books that are currently bouncing around my head uh-huh. and it's just in this state uh just frozen in time yeah whereas in reality like the immortal i feel like the the, the sort of dark Methuselah immortals that we see in science fiction are, right. are kind of the more intriguing models, because they often involve like somebody just getting older, older and more in, inhuman. You know, just awful, awful, super rich old men in cyberpunk novels. Low pan. Well, Lopan, to to draw uh, an example from a, you know, a, a, an eastern influenced western uh, property. We have a <laughs> a super ancient uh, guy who's cursed and just gets worse and worse uh, for never dying. Like there's not a he just continues to spoil and doesn't reach the actual point where you throw him off the shelf. Yeah,
1: two quick asterisks on mentioning Heidegger. One of them was I hope everything I said is contingent on the fact that I understand Heidegger right, which is debatable because his ideas are just notoriously hard to understand. He uses all this weird, specialized terminology. Uh, but then the other thing is saying that you can't really mention Heidegger these days, even his apolitical philosophy or seemingly apolitical philosophy, without also mentioning that he was an unrepentant Nazi. Ah, yes. Uh, don't know if that has any significance to the death philosophy, but I don't know. Maybe we're thinking about.
0: Well, they sure like
1: skulls. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so uh, all of that stuff we've just set aside, I, I think we can say it's a decidedly unusual attitude toward death to say that, you know, yeah, it's a good thing that I'm going to cease to exist at some point. Uh,
0: yeah, or it's 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 easier to embrace it in the abstract. Yeah. But when uh, when the, the Reaper is actually coming around the corner, uh, I, I feel like not everyone is going to be as game to embrace it.
1: People go to enormous, enormous lengths Mm -hmm. to avoid acknowledging death or uh, thinking about the inevitability of death. And there's actually the, the whole psychological framework known as terror management theory that hypothesizes that much of human culture, a lot of what we do as a species, is all built around unconsciously designing frameworks to deny the reality of death and put it out of mind. So yeah. people apply this hypothesis to explaining the existence of cultural norms, like rules in society, things like that, uh, uh, traditions, rules. Religions, uh, activities that we use to entertain ourselves, art, uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say whether terror management theory is a correct interpretation of human behavior, but I do think it, it has some purchase on our uh, explanatory desires. Obviously, because humans just so clearly fear death above all else. It, it's, it's obvious. Everybody would have to acknowledge that this is going on.
0: Yeah. I feel like as with a lot of philosophical or even religious frameworks, uh, I kind of see them as like a series of lenses that one may employ or, um, or pull away depending Mm -hmm. on how you want to try and view your, your uh, reality. And I feel like terror management theory is one of those that, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to go walking around my life all the time Seeing everything within the framework of terror management theory, but occasionally it is helpful to pull it down and say, "Oh, well, it is. It is interesting to view this aspect of the the human experience, mm-hmm. um, in you know, in in reference to our fear of death." Well, Robert, do you think now we should transition to looking at the idea of immortality specifically in Chinese mythology? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go ahead and dive in. So, an important thing to drive home here, of course, is that immortality is far from a cut-and-dry topic in Chinese mythology. Like, they don't have a systematic theology of it. Right, yeah. And, and and again, part of this is because Chinese mythology is a thing that is so deep and wide. It covers a great well of time, as well as a, a vast geographic landscape. Um, plus, uh, mythic uh, history and history have long experienced a certain amount of fusion into a single timeline. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we were chatting about this before we came into the podcast uh, room here. You... You also see this. Um, there's less of a a fusion and canon canonization of Chinese mythology. Right. It's not like what we see in in the West. with we say Greek mythology. Yeah. Where you certainly, as as you grow up in school, there's sort of a a strict pantheon that's thrown at you. There's you know, there's more or less a strict uh, canonization of Greek mythology in classical literature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no Homer and Hesiod. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. In China, in Chinese uh culture, you see far fewer examples of of uh, of important artists or writers taking mythology and then using it uh, to create something new that in turn uh solidifies the tale. So, in in Chinese culture, you still have a lot of these uh, different versions of various myths and folk tales that retain their Original form, and you'll have you know multiple versions of the same story depending yeah. on where you are and when you are.
1: Yeah, there is an interesting uh, explanation of the sort of scattered source nature of Chinese mythology in uh, the intro to one of the books we were using as a resource for this episode, uh, the Handbook of Chinese Mythology by uh, Li Hui Yang and Diming An with Jessica Anderson Turner. And the intro of this book is good. It, it talks about what a lot of the sources were. But the, these fragments that inform our understanding, our modern understanding of Chinese mythology, come from all over the place. And in many cases, they're they're like just small little inscriptions and things like that. And then there are some other larger texts that have – various versions of narratives and things like that. But
0: there's not like a Bible of Chinese mythology. Right. Yeah. And sometimes I like to compare it to to uh, to Hindu mythology. Mm -hmm. And Hinduism is another uh, world where it's just a well of ideas and religions and traditions all thrown together. Uh, But yet there are there are several key epics. That in particular, that help inform the backbone of the thing. If you think of a faith as a snake rising up through that well, uh, then Hindu mythology might be, you know, a, a spiraling snake. But you can you can definitely pinpoint key key parts of its anatomy. So in Chinese mythology, the the line between more mortality and immortality often becomes a bit blurred. Uh, you know, we mentioned. Uh, big trouble in little china earlier um and this will be this little- is n- not a traditional text not a traditional text but just a i will mention it one more time in this episode uh <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan of the film and i feel like um even though it's very much a western product it it actually does a an okay job uh giving like a broad treatment of chinese mythology uh in that it um you know it. it I feel like it has a deceptively deep treatment of certain aspects of Chinese mythology, uh-huh. even though it kind of plays fast and loose with everything uh but it grounds itself in some key principles, and certainly we see that with lopan in his uh his immortal and mortal duality he's at he's at once this this frail old man and this uh you know you know ten foot tall spirit character huh so keep that in mind if, as we move forward okay so If you go back all the way to some of the earlier uh, myths in in China, there's this presumption of immortality about the primeval gods. So this is a concept that falls in line with Judeo-Christian concepts of the divine, etc. And yet gods such as the Yellow Emperor do suffer defeat and death, though there's often a, a metamorphosis trope here as well. Uh, So you might remember from our Great Flood episode, uh, the legendary hero Kun uh, drowns and becomes a a bear or possibly a turtle or a dragon, depending on which version you're looking at.
1: So there's a, a transformation element.
0: Yeah. So it's the idea of living forever is not simply one of re- retaining your current state, but transcending to a different state.
1: But also in some features of Chinese mythology, we do see a kind of uh, a middle or liminal state of, right. Like the, in the concept of undead creatures like that, they're not exactly immortals living forever, not exactly regular mortals.
0: There's something in between or yeah, somehow a third kind of state. Both. Yeah. We, we do see some cool examples of that. Uh, Anne Beryl points out some of these in her excellent book, Chinese Mythology and Introduction, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I, highly recommend. One of them is, uh, Woman Chao, who is, uh, a, this deity. She's actually a, a, drought goddess and she's said to have been born a corpse. That's creepy. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe, you know, we'll t- take it all in here. Okay. Now she, she lived through the world of the ten suns. So there's this uh, story uh, in the mythology where at one point in the, in the distant past, the earth had ten suns in the sky.
1: Or you might conceive this as nine extra suns. Yes, or
0: nine extra suns. Nine superfluous yes. suns. <laughs> so what are you going to do? There are nine extra suns, and it's just scorching the earth. It's burning up all the crops. Uh-huh. Uh, and this is where uh, Yi the archer enters the picture. He'll come, again, come up again later. And uh, he starts uh, shooting down the surplus suns with his bow. Uh, saves the world uh and uh and then uh, she, uh, Cho is able to come back to life so she 's affiliated with uh, with the crab because the crab in, in sort of mythic understanding sheds its shell and regrows forever mm. so here we see an idea of a of an immortal character who is also a character that dies but it 's a it's but there's a a, a continual um, rebirth i uh, she dries out, but she comes back i i 'm seeing
1: here the uh the, the myth, maybe this is the origin of that myth that was going around on the internet a few years ago that arthropods like lobsters live forever.
0: Yeah. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I do remember that, that kind of going around. And that, it, it does tie into, into some of these mythic interpretations of what these animals are doing when they molt. Uh, from what I recall,
1: that turned out to be a very incorrect understanding of what the research showed. Yes.
0: <laughs> now, another character that uh, she brings up is one, uh, Sing Tain, who, um is this a uh, warrior God character and uh, he continues to fight after being beheaded. Whoa. So he's, he's kind of a, you know, a headless horseman or a roll in the headless Thompson gunner. <laughs> um, he loses a battle to the yellow emperor. And uh, so he's essentially a, a failed hero. He, he transforms though, rather than submit immediately to death. And uh, it's quite a transformation. Yeah. Tell me about it. All right. Here's the, here's the quote that uh, Beryl uh, rolls up. Sing Tain and the Yellow Emperor came to this place and fought for divine rule. The Yellow Emperor cut off his head and buried it on Chang Yang Mountain. Sing Tien made his nipples serve his eyes and his navel as a mouth, and brandishing his shield and battle axe, he danced whoa, yeah, nipple eyes, navel mouth yeah, and there's some there's some like old uh, images of this too it's pretty pretty monstrous that is uh, awesome. But, you know, he's he he's stubborn. He's uh, he's going to fight to the bitter end, even though he's going to have to transform into something else to do it. Okay, so here you've seen a couple of examples
1: of uh, of survival of death or some form of survival of death or immortality in a liminal or middle state or through metamorphosis or transformation.
0: Yeah, we see this uh, idea of immortality not as a state of eternal youth, but as a change into something stranger, something less human, something that's still very much like the biological process of aging, mm-hmm. only for lack of a better word, like aging up. You mean that kind of like leveling up? Yeah, like okay. yeah, you're 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 leveling up, you're getting older because that, we we certainly have, you know, in the I feel like in certainly in western culture, I would say universally there's this idea, you know, that you're going to go over the hill. Mm-hmm. You're going to peak and then the uh the, the the years on the back end or even the decades in the back end are going to be a decline. Right. Mm-hmm. But in some of these mythic ideas of undying uh, beings, there's the sense that you're they're aging, they're getting older and older, stranger and stranger. And yet there's still an upward trajectory. Hmm. And certainly some I mean, some uh, human lives are like that. Some people don't really get into their prime until their final years. Some great writers or artists have produced their finest work. In those periods. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it varies from case to case.
1: I, I wonder if this has something to do with a general cultural relevance for the elderly and, and respect for for uh, the wisdom that comes with age.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent read on it. It does match up with the, the idea of uh, filial piety, of uh, yeah. you know, the veneration of ancestors and, and the important role of, of, of grandparents in the traditional Chinese family.
1: All right. Well, maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can have a look at uh, mushrooms and grasses of immortality. So, Robert, tell me about living forever through mushrooms.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, so this is one of those areas where, in in Chinese culture, you have you have mythology and folklore, you have um, you have Taoism. You have Confucianism, and you uh, you also have like Chinese traditional medicine. It's mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's playing a role in all of this and getting in the mix. And so uh, we there there are stories of plenty of stories and continued use of the uh, the reishi mushroom or the uh, lingzhi mushroom in China. Uh, they're known for their life-extending properties, and they've Mm -hmm. been used medicinally for at least 2,000 years because they have this reputation for promoting health and longevity. Uh, We talk about this when uh, Christian and I talked about it in uh, our Weird Mushrooms episode of the podcast a few months back. And uh, traditional Chinese medicine use continues to this day. Uh, And ancient use of this uh, go back at least to like 475 BCE, just based on their textual uh, appearance. Okay. Well, tell me about some kind of mythical plant
1: that's going to give it immortality because you got to have that in your, in your mythical basis, right?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I think you alluded to it in the, uh, in, in the intro. You always have like what the, the tree, uh, the, in the garden yeah. of Eden, don't, you know, various apples and fruits that, uh, have divine properties and may give you eternal or long life. Didn't the Greek gods have a tree like that? I believe or? they did. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a world tree, in Chinese uh, tradition as well. But there, uh, there also is, uh, grass. There's uh, there's mention of the, the grass of immortality. Uh, there are numerous magical grasses, uh, but the grass of immortality pops up in the legend of Lady Whitesnake. Mm. This is a pretty fun one. So it, it grows along with other magical plants on the earthly paradise in the Kunlun Mountains. Uh, Lady Whitesnake was a monster who turned into a woman, married a kind man, but one day, her husband sees her in her true form and it scares him to death. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, it, it reminds me a lot of the the Lady in the Snow story from Japanese mm. uh, culture. Uh, and that was also adapted into the gargoyle story in Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. If you remember that one um, there's a gargoyle woman who takes mortal form and marries a kind man. So anyway, she's distraught because he's dead now. So she flies to the holy mountain. She retrieves the grass of immortality and, and uh, she, but she has to first convince the immortal grandfather of the South pole, the God of longevity to give it to her. Oh, And uh, this, and this is a very interesting character as well as we're going to discuss. Well, don't make me wait. Tell me about the immortal grandfather. Yes. We're talking about uh, Nanji Xing Wing, AKA immortal grandfather of the South pole. Uh, also often attributed as, uh, as simply shou, which, uh, literally means longevity in Mandarin. Uh, right. he's also, uh, you know, symbolically a jovial old man with a great swollen forehead, uh, cause it's so full of knowledge. Uh-huh. And, uh, astrologically speaking, because uh, he's a figure that plays into Chinese astrology, he's also the class F giant star Canopus. You would generally expect a person
1: who is a giant star to have a quite swollen head.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's old, he's full of wisdom, and, yeah, he's he's lined up with this particular star. And it, it makes sense. Canopus plays in, into a number of different uh, astrological traditions. It's the second brightest star in the sky. Uh, and if you're wondering how old it is, we're talking 15 to 20 million years. Mm-hmm. Now, I was not expecting to make a Dune reference in this episode. What? But this is crazy. In Frank Herbert's Dune universe, the planet Arrakis which is the you know the planet dune with right. the sandworms uh-huh. and the spice is actually orbiting cannabis. Oh okay. So the home of the geriat- the geriatric spice melange the mind expanding life extending uh, substance in uh-huh. that fictional universe it orbits the ancient chinese god of longevity and wisdom. Do you think that's by design? I I don't know. I wouldn't put it past Herbert. I'm not as immersed in Herbert's bi- biography as many are. Uh-huh. So I can't say 100%. I know he he doesn't seem to make a lot of specifically eastern references, but he also does seem to incorporate a lot about different He cultures. does. Yeah. I don't know. So I I would not doubt it if someone were to, you know, to to say, "Oh, he definitely drew interpretation from Chinese mythology." It would it would certainly it would certainly make sense. I'm sensing the onset of a,
1: but wait, there's
0: more. It's true. In Greek myth, uh, Canopus was the name of the pilot of the fleet of Menelaus. And Menelaus was an Atreides. What? Yeah. So in Greek myth, the Atreides were the, son, the sons of Atreus. Uh And of course, the Atreides, Paul Atreides, this is the, the central family in the, the Dune Saga. Right. So yeah, if, the more- If you've
1: seen the movie, they're the people with the pug. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So the the more I I look at it the more I'm like surely surely this is intentional. Yeah. Otherwise it's just the most wonderful coincidence for for me personally that these two things that I uh, appreciate should be united. Wow, that's interesting. Uh well okay, g-
1: give me more about the immortal grandfather himself. So like w- what's his significance in in their whole pantheon?
0: All right. So uh, for a lot of people listening you might have seen him if you go into either a Chinese home, a Chinese business, um, you know, a Chinese restaurant. I certainly uh, noticed a lot of these for the first time when I was in China and saw them in hotel lobbies. Huh? Cause you see these three individuals and, and, uh and show in in particular stands out because he has that, that, that forehead. So you have these three stars, these three gods. There's a uh, Fu, Lu and show. So Fu represents good fortune. And we see that symbolized in his scholars dress, Cradled child, and in, in fact, sometimes he's crawling with children like he's infested. Uh, sometimes <laughs> he has a scroll as well. Uh, and then there is uh, Lou, and Lou has uh, fine clothes, a Ryu scepter, and he's, uh, he's the one you want to vener- venerate for business savvy and professional success. Okay. And then you have uh, Old Man Sho with uh, the, the bloated skull. Uh That represents longevity the the wisdom that comes with old age. Taoist mythology attributes his ancient appearance to ten years in his mother's womb huh. and and that he was actually born an old man, and he also often carries uh, the peach uh, of immortality as well, uh, which would have been obtained from another longevity god, the queen, Mother of the West. So there, there are a lot of symbols coming together in his in this particular figure. So here we have another specific piece
1: of plant matter of immortality, the peach of immortality. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you start taking in global myths in general, yeah. there's just an entire salad buffet of, of various things that will give you immortality right yeah. down to the bacon bits.
1: Pe- peach of immortality, bacon bits, mm-hmm. fruit of the tree of life, ambrosia. What yeah. else? What else?
0: Well, if it, I'm I'm imagining like the Shonies all-you-can-eat buffet, and you've got the seafood buffet at the end, uh-huh. so you get right down to the crab, I guess. The soft serve of immortality. Yeah. So coming back to this idea of aging up of of the of the body changing of becoming this uh, this slightly inhuman aged form, we see that with show, and, and certainly Chinese myth is full of immortal and long living creatures, monsters, spirits. Uh, including the the Wutong Shen oh, that who we've you've mentioned, mentioned before. before yeah, yeah. Uh, but one in particular ties in with what we're talking about here so we're talking about the Xian the 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 Taoist immortal body so there's a, a writing uh, uh, about this from uh, one Zhuang uh, Zhou who uh, wrote about immortality for mortals uh, in reference to an enlightened human sage okay so it's, it's, so so we can get it that's the idea here is that there's a way for at least certain humans to ob- obtain this. OK, <laughs> maybe not you and me, but and maybe not. But, not enlightened enough, but right. somebody could get it. Right. So this is what he said. He said there is a holy man living on faraway Cushi Mountain with skin like ice or snow and gentle and shy like a young girl. He doesn't eat the five grains, but sucks the wind, drinks the dew, climbs up on the clouds and mist, rides a flying dragon and wanders beyond the four seas. By concentrating his spirit, he can protect creatures from sickness and plague and make the harvest plentiful. Hmm. So uh, Ann Beryl points to a number of aspects of this account that are noteworthy. So we have a hermit on a mountain. You're on a mountain. You're closer to heaven. Okay. Uh, dietless. We have transformed gender. We see meditation, travel at will, magical powers of a beneficial nature. And uh, carrying particular weight in Taoist philosophy, this figure of the of the Xin, the, or the transcendental being, um, Though the particulars, you know, vary depending on the exact reading, Taoism, Chinese alchemy, mythology, literature, folk tales, etc. Uh, p- perhaps the most famed use uh, of this trope is in the the Eight Immortals, which are a group of Taoist immortals who feature into various works of art and literature, and they even show up in films, Hong Kong action movies, oh, even really? the, dr- the Drunken Master uh, films. So uh-huh. It's been forever since I saw one of those, but apparently the the Eight Immortals show up there. They they. They found new forms in comic books, so they're they're pretty big, uh, big money. Do they still embody these traditional characteristics? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are kind of like the the, the tropes of the 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 old immortal sage of uh, of Dallas tradition. And I think it's it's all quite interesting. I mean, you can take a, a literal reading of them and just say how oh, they're, they're magical weird dudes, but I like how the aspects of the the enlightened transcendental body here seem to be supernatural reflections of the actual biological factors of old age. Right. Changes in appetite, softening of gender, the potential for solitude and increased empathy. Well, one thing I I was looking at this and I thought it was quite
1: interesting how some of these features that Mm -hmm. are being associated with this transcendental immortal um are actually paralleled in real scientific research on longevity. Oh, cool. Uh, so, for example, one of them is uh, – so it's a, an old man who seems to lose some primary sex characteristics. And this made me think, well, that sort of goes along with some research we have indicating that men can see increased longevity through castration. Oh yeah. This is probably not the option everyone will end up going for to prolong their life. But, uh, just wanted to mention a couple, couple of studies. There was a 1969 study in the Journal of Gerontology by James Hamilton and Gordon Messler. Uh, and it studied the longevity, unfortunately, in uh, early mid to 20th century institutionalized men who had been forcibly castrated as a result of the eugenics ideology of the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a pretty unfortunate circumstance. But what they did find out from it was that uh, from so they looked at uh, 297 castrated men and compared them with uh 735 age-matched controls, so men who were living in the same conditions, Uh, and they revealed that the castrated men had a significantly increased lifespan. I think it was a difference of about six years, and if uh, only those that were castrated earlier in life were considered, the, the effect on lifespan was even more drastic. It was more than 11 years. And there was also a study that uh, was uh, published in the 2012 issue of Current Biology that um, it was called The Lifespan of Korean Eunuchs" by Kyung Jin Min, uh Chol-Koo Lee, and Han Nam Park. And uh, they said that their goal was to look at the effects of castration by analyzing historical Korean eunuchs. So they looked at the genealogical records of 81 historical Korean eunuchs and then compared those to similar men of, of similar socioeconomic status, but who had not been castrated. And they determined that, quote, the average lifespan of eunuchs was uh 70 uh, plus or minus 1.76 years, which was 14.4 to 19.1 years longer. Than the lifespan of non-castrated men uh, who who had the similar station in society. So this all feeds into this body of literature that people have been looking at to say that perhaps male sex hormones, in some way, decrease
0: one's ability to live to an older age. Huh. Well, that raises some interesting possibilities then about the uh, the the, the possible link between eunuchs. uh, and, uh, this, this, uh, this trope of the, the, the aged immortal. Yeah. Um, because I mean, uh, certainly we, we had eunuchs in China, in Chinese tradition. Right. Um uh, I don't know. It would be interesting to come back and explore that more. I would love, I've long wanted to do an episode on eunuchs, mm. sort of talk about not only the, the science of eunuchs, like what's actually happening, but also their role in society. Right. Which has, has varied greatly. You've had, Certainly, you've had plenty of situations where eunuchs uh, are treated as like a third gender, as a, a second class kind of citizen. But they have also ascended to tremendous power right. uh, at certain times and in, in certain conditions. I think in many cases, you can look at it as an
1: analog to the way celibacy was practiced in other contexts yeah. where there, there's like a, a fear of people establishing hereditary corruption, uh, and in situations like that, there is often either enforced cel- celibacy or preference for castrated men or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I want to go with another example of the, the, the enlightened immortal. Uh, it says that the enlightened immortal, what, uh, sucks the wind and drinks the dew. That's their mm-hmm. diet. Yeah. Uh, I, I also wanted to tie this into the research on the link between caloric restriction and longevity, which is not, Um, Not fully established. I think we've seen some back and forth in the research there. But the idea here is that restricting daily food intake below the level of satiation, but above the level of malnutrition. uh, Generally, I think what's looked at is about a 30 percent reduction below standard intake of daily calories could lead to longer lifespan in animals. Uh, And the effect has been observed in short-lived species like mice and rats. But the question is, would it apply to big primates like us? Well, there have now been several studies looking at uh, long-term caloric restriction in rhesus monkeys, and the results have been mixed. So there was one study in 2009 that was a 20-year longitudinal adult-onset caloric restriction study in rhesus monkeys, and they did find that uh, the caloric restriction led to increased lifespan in the rhesus monkeys. Then there was a different study uh, published in Nature in 2012 that did a 23-year study on rhesus macaques and it did not find it, – it found a very slight increase through caloric restriction as compared to a control group. But it was not uh, – the difference wasn't statistically significant. So they said, you know, this is not replicated. But then I found one more uh, analysis published in Nature Communications in 2014 looking at the, uh, the the previous, the 2012 study that didn't find support for caloric restriction and longevity – and they ended up, uh, suggesting that what was really going on with the 2012 study, the problem there was that the control monkeys were effectively actually undergoing caloric restriction. <laughs> uh, so there wasn't a proper control. Basically all the monkeys were, were having caloric restriction. So, uh, so the jury's not, not in yet on exactly the relationship there, but there are some indications that there could be a, a, a real connection between I don't know, being this dietless kind of creature. Well, probably not eating nothing.
0: Right. But more than the
1: dew in the wind. Right. Um, but, but less than you want to eat huh. and living much
0: longer than average. So, yeah, perhaps the just the symbol of this ancient sage encompasses uh, some some basic ideas uh, that are helpful for living a long life. Right. Now, that's all well and good to say. Oh, well, maybe you should uh, maybe you should eat less. Maybe you should uh, be a little less masculine. Maybe you should, uh, you know, walk around in the mountains more. Yeah, that's all well and good. But here in modern times, what we want is a pill, right? What we want is a, a drink. What we want is a magic potion. It's so much easier. Yeah, so
1: much easier than getting castrated and not eating all the pizza.
0: Yeah. Well, fortunately, there is a long history of alchemy in uh, Chinese uh, yeah history and in Chinese mythology so we can turn to uh alchemical uh, means to produce the same effect tell in, me you know mythologically speaking okay so in Kohong's hung's uh, biographies of holy immortals this is a 4th century tome of immortality and longevity sorcery uh, accounts of supernatural beings and and what have you it contains instructions for the creation of various potions such as one for gold and gold here i uh, I'm I'm fairly certain we are not to, supposed to interpret as simply the element gold. Oh, okay. something something more in line with uh, Western uh, alchemy's sorcerer's stone kind of uh thing, which itself was not necessarily a stone but a substance. Okay. So we get this this gold, and then you simply ingest one pound of the gold to cure disease and make quote three worms cry for mercy. What does that mean? I guess the like the three worms that would uh, like eat at you and age you, you know, you know, the three worms. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Three pounds of the gold will make you live till the world's end. Only till the world's end. Well, I think that the actual phrasing is essentially like you will live as long as the natural world like. Presumably, you could still – like if the world – if you have nowhere to live, you're you're done. So it's kind of like a biological immortality, I guess.
1: Now, I'm interested in the, the differentiation between indefinite immortality, like you will live forever, versus you will just live for many thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. Like are, are these effectively actually different propositions?
0: Well, yeah. I mean it comes down we, – we broke it down a little bit earlier. Yeah. Are, are you saying – If you say you want to live forever, are you saying, I want to transform into something cosmic? Mm -hmm. Are you saying, I want to be exactly like I am right now forever? I want to be basically like I am right now, except I'm going to keep getting smarter and stuff. Or like I'm I'm going to continue to age as I'm aging, but with absolutely no stop date. Like I'm just going to get, just take aging to the limit. I mean, I guess
1: if you lived until the end of the universe... Mm-hmm. Uh, there'd be nothing left for you to do, right? If the universe becomes, uh, homogenous, just heat death, uh, everything is just cold darkness.
0: Yeah. I don't know. And if you love just hanging out on mountaintops and riding dragons and, and drinking the dew out of the air, like none of that's gonna be around anymore, so why bother? Uh, so three, three, Pounds of the gold will get you that far. But also you can put it in a corpse. You can put a pill of it in a corpse's mouth along with some spit and resurrect them from the dead. Huh. So there's that. I do find it interesting that it seems to take far less to resurrect the dead than to simply um, sustain human life indefinitely. All right. Well, I think we should take a quick break. And
1: then when we come back, we will talk about the elixir of immortality. So, Robert, tell me about the elixir of immortality in Chinese mythology.
0: All right. So this is, of all of the various potions and concoctions, this particular magic potion is probably the most famous of Chinese immortality quest items, okay? Uh, in part because it involves a number of big-name gods and heroes. It concerns the moon. So, as with all these stories, the details and the shape of the narrative changes depending on where you're dipping your net in the waters of Chinese myth. But th- these are the basics. Okay. Okay. So while various shamans and deities have access to this elixir, it's primarily associated with the Queen Mother of the West. And a jade rabbit pounds it in a mortar for her. So so imagine this this divine uh, feminine entity, and here is a magical jade rabbit. Pounding something in a in a mortar, and it's creating
1: this potion. And I've seen at least one uh, ancient painting or depiction that has that. It's exactly as literal as it sounds. It's right. a rabbit holding a pestle, pounding in the mortar.
0: Yes, okay, so that's established. Remember, ye the archer from earlier, we we're talking about who shot down the surplus sons. Right, we had nine too many. He took them out. Right. Well, the Queen Mother of the West uh I guess you know was impressed with this, uh gives him the potion so that he might live forever and rule over men for ages to come. Oh okay. it makes sense, right? He's a a big name hero. He either he's rewarded with this or he asks for it and he gets it. But here's the thing, Yi has a wife, uh Chang Yi, okay? And uh she steals it, drinks it, and flees to the moon. Now, one of the things is that, uh,
1: looking at the books we used for this episode, there are a lot of versions of this yes. myth and Chinese, uh, role in them is vastly different
0: depending yeah. on which version you read. It's kind of like looking in on, if you look at these, these heroes and gods as celebrities, it's kind of like a celebrity domestic dispute of some sort. Uh-huh. So uh, at first, we can just say all we know are the basics here. There's this potion. She drank it. Maybe she stole it. Yeah. She's and the bad she, guy. And right? then she went to the moon. Yeah. What
1: happened? What are the details? Changi is the villain of this story. And in some versions, she does sort of get punished, right? Like she gets turned into a toad or
0: something. Yeah. yeah like the earliest uh, versions of it, she's punished by the gods for stealing. Essentially, from the gods or stealing a gift of the gods that was not hers, uh-huh. and she is transformed she gets to the moon, but there she's transformed into a toad, and the toad is another symbolic animal of immortality, uh-huh. but the idea is that you could look up uh, at the moon and you could see a tree, a toad uh and and the rabbit, and we'll get to the tree in a bit uh but there there are versions that are more complex too, right? yeah, so there's one version that I like to think of is like the love lady Hawk version, okay. okay. Uh, And in this one, Yi loved Chang Yi uh, too much to drink the potion and become immortal without her. He only had the one dose, so he just gave it to her for safekeeping. But then Yi's apprentice Feng Ming comes along and he's a, he's a bad dude. He envied uh, the heroic archer, wanted his skills and in some tales would eventually murder him. Oh no. Yeah. They get into like a, a duel with uh, their bows mm-hmm. and Feng Ming can't match him in archery skills. So he clubs him to death with I think the bow of a, a peach tree. Wow. Well, I, that's probably cheating in the duel, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, he's a he's a bad he's a bad character. He's, okay. He's not going to play fair. The only way he's going to defeat Yi is by cheating. So, uh, in this particular story, Fing Ming catches wind uh, of this. He finds out that uh, Yi's wife has the potion. Okay. So he comes to her to take it from her, and she won't let him have it. She swallows it instead to keep it from falling into his vile hands, and she immediately flies into the sky, and she cho- she chooses the moon to, like, fuse with, to become stuck on, become part of, however you want to interpret that, because it would be nearest to her beloved. Uh, so remember, immortality via transformation. Hmm. Yi comes home, and he's so saddened by all this that he offers fruit and cakes as offering to her in the first autumn moon festival, or oh. at least in the offering that will become autumn moon festival. That That's sad but beautiful. Yeah, and I, I like this one. I, I feel like this is my, my favorite of the two two versions we're going to look at here. Okay. Well, what's the other one? Well, the other one is certainly more tragic. Uh, in this one, Yi is certainly a hero, but then he becomes a tyrannical ruler after the fall of the nine surplus sons. So he saved the day, but then when he actu- when it actually comes down to him governing and ruling, he proves to be just a horrible dude. Hey, this often happens, right? You yeah. Got a, got a military hero. They save the day, but mm-hmm. I don't know. During peacetime, they get a little antsy. Yeah, power corrupts. And it's interesting that you, I mean, it, it makes sense that you would see a different interpretation of this through, you know, all, through all these different uh, dynastic cycles in Chinese history. You have some good rulers, you have some terrible rulers, you have some beloved uh, uh, rulers, and you have some despised rulers. Mm-hmm. So the way you interpret a mythic uh, uh, hero like this, a military hero, is bound to be reinterpreted depending on what you have to work with. So in this version, he's awful. And he obtains the elixir so that he can rule forever, oh no, and um uh, uh, Chang Yi does not want this to happen; she can't bear to see the people suffer, so she steals the elixir from him, drinks it, and then she starts rising up into the sky. Yi shoots arrows at her as she flees to the into the sky, and then when she makes it to the moon, he dies of anger. Because he's so enraged by her treachery and her escape, dies of anger. Yeah, that's intense. And then she just occupies uh, the moon, and the autumn moon festival becomes a way for people to thank her for her selfless sacrifice.
1: Okay, so instead of Yi initiating the festival, it's people initiate it, thanking her for saving them from Yi. Ye.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. She's a, it's some, sometimes she's vilified and punished by the gods, but her character is a lot more consistent uh, as opposed to Yi's character ego Yi seems to swing a lot broader from hero to villain mm-hmm. in these in these two tellings at any rate now on the moon her life varies depending on when and where you're gathering your, your story from uh, so she may have been turned into the toad perhaps as punishment uh, and also because the toad sheds its skin as in an act of mythic immortality and hmm. uh, and, uh, in the earlier tales, she's more punished in the later ones. They're, you know, they're more sympathetic to her and they forget the toad form. There, she may be forced to pound the elixir into the mortar, though you also see this version where the jade rabbit joins her on the moon and then does the work for her. And then to top things off, there is a tree on the moon and there's a guy there that Came apparently to, to, to like steal immortality and his punishment he has to continually chop at this tree and every time he chops into it, it, uh, uh the, the the, uh, the, the gouge in the tree heals back up. Oh no. Yeah. So you have kind of a, uh, you know, a, a miss of uh, Sisyphus going on. Yeah. On the moon there. Pointless eternal labor. Yeah.
1: But will he live forever in this pointless eternal life?
0: He will. That's kind of the the interesting thing about it. The irony. He got immortality. It's just a a horrible immortality of doing the same thing over and over again, which is kind of a nice commentary on that, on what we were ripping on earlier. The idea, like, why would you want to live together in a constant state that that doesn't change? Well, this guy got it. Uh, uh, His name, Wu Gang, by the way. Hmm.
1: Yeah. If you're not living towards something if you're if there's nothing you could ever finish and everything is stasis and always stays the same do you want to live forever
0: indeed I mean this is the this is why these ideas are so uh, so fun to, to to talk about so fun to explore in cultures both uh close to home and uh, and distant because we find these universal ideas these universal questions. Hmm. Okay, well maybe we should step back and say uh wh- what do we make of
1: all these uh these myths and these cultural beliefs? Like wh- what does this have to do with our cognition and the way we think about death today? Death and immortality.
0: Well, you know, uh, much has been written about the, the manner by which myth and religion emerge from the human mind. Uh, but the jury's still out on exactly what cognitive mechanisms are responsible for belief in such supernatural concepts as survival of consciousness, ghosts, gods, etc. Right. And much of what has been presented in, in in psychology and in these studies is based upon the study of Western populations, uh, populations that are heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian tradition, Maybe some Islam, but generally, you know, people of the book, people that are tied to this particular, uh, uh, Abrahamic tradition. Right.
1: And that have a, maybe not totally unified, but, uh, more canonical, uh, prescriptive understanding of what the afterlife is.
0: Yeah. And also from societies that were, have at least been, like, traditionally and historically, uh, religious, uh, yeah. in tone. Now this leaves out China though. Which is a, a, has long been a secular state with a history of non-religious philosophies and unique varied mythological and religious roots. Mm-hmm. In 2014, Dr. Melanie Nyhoff and Dr. Kelly James Clark embarked on a study sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation and UC Riverside, uh, given the, at least the preliminary title, Afterlife Beliefs and Their Cognitive Mechanisms Among the Chinese, Past and Present. This was part of the immortality project. What's that? Uh, it, it's a let's say broader like I forget the dollar amount is like a big dollar item uh, f- flight of studies that are looking into various topics uh, circling around the concept of immortality. Okay, so sadly, this is not. This is apparently still. Underway. They're apparently still working on this. There's no published study, uh, out with this title. Uh, hopefully we'll get to see it in the, in the near future. Hmm. But still, it drives home the importance of when you, if you're gonna look at the relationship between cognition and religion, cognition and myth, uh, you can't just depend on one cultural model. Right. You mean like studies on college students in exactly. the United
1: States and Great Britain or something? Right. Yeah. We
0: see the same thing in, in, uh, in scientific studies all over. Yeah. Uh, where, where people have increasingly said, wait, you, how are we basing all of this supposed universal understanding on a very specific and select, uh, subset of, of human beings? Mm-hmm. Now, um, all this being said, Dr. Melanie Nyloff uh, also worked on the Thrive Center project. Is religion natural? The Chinese challenge, uh, which addresses many of these concerns uh, through two thousand years of, of Chinese culture, uh, and it makes the the following points. And most of these are points for universality. Okay. Uh, first, high gods, as opposed to low gods in, in Chinese uh, myth, served as moral infer- enforcers, okay? So they rewarded and punished the behaviors of human. Hmm. And in this, we see uh, uniformity with global trends toward human-envisioned gods, the theory of a mind-powered personification of the human mind's hunger for uh, for reasons known and unknown to explain the universe. So this begins in early childhood, and it persists into adulthood. Hmm. Mainland Chinese children shared much in common with Western children and adults in this. So purpose-based explanations for the world. So the example given was when asked, you know, what's the deal with mountains? Well, mountains were created for climbing, just as hats were created for warmth. Oh, yeah. This, I've read about this before,
1: yeah. like uh, children having a tendency to assume that things uh if asked to give an explanation for the existence of something they explain it in terms of its usefulness to them right uh so like the the reason this table exists is so i can sit at it well that might be true the reason this rock exists is so i can skip it over the water
0: yeah it's like they they have a simplistic but very reasonable explanation incorrect explanation often mm-hmm. for what the why these things are there and as we get older, we we don't really abandon this line of thinking. We just uh, make it a little more complex, right? Well,
1: like maybe we know it's not necessarily correct, but we still want
0: to feel that way, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just this tendency to see purpose in nature. So it's a teleological understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, three to five year olds uh, in this uh, particular study they displayed a, you know a natural ease in imagining all knowing and all seeing invisible beings. So the idea here is that our our minds cling to intuitive religious ideas. I mean gods and gods are just parents that love us for example. You know, we're just taking a relatable human relationship and extrapolating it into the supernatural scenario. But we also cling to counterintuitive ideas because they stand out. They're quirky, they're memorable. And gods, after all, they tend to be counterintuitive. I've read a little bit about this in in the idea of meme theory as yeah. well, that
1: like a lot of the memes that catch on are those that are uh, familiar enough to be tractable to our minds, but also weird enough to be memorable. So yeah. the, the thing that, that really sticks out in our brain and, and merits remembering and repetition is the thing that's kind of like the thing you know. Mm-hmm. but also different enough that you don't forget it.
0: Yeah, like I think a lot of the examples that stick with me, uh, like to go outside of Chinese mythology and think of, like, say, Greek mythology or even Christianity. Like in Greek mythology, I instantly think of Zeus turning into random animals yeah. to uh, have sexual relations with human women. Because when you hear about that, especially when you're a kid, you're like, that's that's insane. What This makes no sense. Why is that even happening? Mm-hmm. It's so absurd that it sticks with you. And it ultimately is kind of is is telling about this character, this sort of absurd, horrible, kind of tyrannical God. Yeah. So in both uh, in the study, in both UK and Chinese subjects, children had an easier time with counterintuitive ideas while while adults struggled with them. So the idea is that you had like some sort of strange idea of a God. The kids would be more inclined to to believe in it. The adults would have maybe a harder time uh, digesting it all. But they, they found that quote, Natural intuitions underlying the practice of rituals exist across cultures, but the differences found between China and previously considered nations suggest that cultural differences may influence the types of rituals practiced. Specifically in China, a few rituals were found in which a spirit or God acts upon humans, such as when a priest uh, represents the God in a wedding to people, a common ritual type in much of the world. So they're saying that that type of thing is not very common in Chinese religion. Right. And uh, then they also pointed out that since you have a largely secularized society, you've seen a a downplaying of of religious expression, they predicted that there would be a natural inclination for religious thought that would, in the secularized society, leak out in novel ways. Hmm. So kind of like, you know, the steam's building up. It's got to release somehow. If religion is a natural inclination... You know, if, of all of these, even the the, the strangest and the, the more elaborate supernatural beliefs have a grounding in the way our brains work. If we are if that is discouraged, it's still going to have to find a way out. And I, I think this is one of those areas where you can you could probably chew on this concept for quite some time and find various examples. But the one that they pointed to is World of Warcraft. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. They they highlighted it as, quote, An unorthodox vehicle for religious, spiritual, and moral expression in China. So. Okay. Which I I can see that. You know, I'm not a World of Warcraft player, but I know it is an immersive game with a, you know, a, a fairly deep fantasy mythos full of heroes and I assume gods, good and evil battling against each other.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, one of the things that, uh, that I guess this is implying is that you take a secular state, a mostly secularized mm-hmm. state where uh, the importance of religion has greatly decreased. Um, and yet people still have, I mean, whatever the reason for the emergence of religion, it's easy to think about it having something to do with the desire for immortality right. or the desire for a belief in immortal beings of some kind, some kind of continuing beyond uh, mortality and death. Um that desire probably doesn't go away, even if you have a mostly secularized state. So like, how does it find expression? Um, and so one of the things I'm interested in is, is the parallels between this thing we've seen throughout uh, this episode, looking at Chinese immortality on immortality through transformation, mm-hmm. the idea that you uh, transcend your, your mortal existence by becoming something else. The parallel between that and the secular immortality is, Beliefs of transhumanism that we see today. I mean, this is a common thing now where you've, you'll you get all these very, very smart, you know, technology-oriented people saying, oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to live forever. I mean, there are people who think that today, who think mm-hmm. they're materialists in a non-religious sense. Well, you can debate the extent to which it's religious, but at least in a non-supernatural sense, they think that they're going to have an indefinite lifespan because uh, computers will reach such a point of advancement that we'll be able to download our consciousness into them and transform ourselves into this new digital existence where you can live indefinitely.
0: Yeah, and then likewise you have the 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 Aubrey de Gray kind of approach to longevity, like breaking up death into various uh, winnable battles. The war against death is a bit too much to consider. But if we break it down into I think it's like eight different categories, maybe it's twelve categories. Yeah. It says like these are the categories these are the advancements that need to take place for us to essentially defeat death. Yeah.
1: He, he's trying to reduce the problem to components. Yes. So he's saying, like, if we can solve these I, – yeah, I don't remember the number either. But it's like if we can solve these 11 problems, uh, then we will no longer age and die. Yeah. Uh, now, there, he has met a lot of resistance to that. Mm-hmm.
0: There are a lot of people who disagree with him very strongly. Despite his wizardly beard sagely <laughs> appearance, maybe if he had just a slightly larger forehead uh, and an appetite for dew and wind, we might uh buy into him more hmm. perhaps I know you 're joking, but I do think he gets a lot of mileage out of that beard <laughs> it it helps he has he he has the the appearance of a, of a wizard who is going to to help you achieve your goals and uh you know and if you 're a an aged uh, individual with uh a lot of extra research uh, dollars floating around, you mm-hmm. might be inclined to, uh, to fund him. You know, one more thing, sorry, I'm still thinking
1: about this, uh the, the, the digital consciousness uh-huh. mortality thing this, so assuming you have some kind of materialist conception of consciousness and you want to survive forever by having your consciousness downloaded into a computer. I'm skeptical of that idea too, by the way, because right. how does that transfer occur? But some people think that'll happen. Um, you have just fully abandoned your biological imperatives like the, the genes that built your brain which generated the phenomenon of your mind are just completely gone now like in our example where the you know you you are the brain in the vat on the robot now um what is that existence like and at some point does that existence come back to bite you
0: well i mean it comes back to the moon right yeah you can imagine ye obtaining the elixir and being told, Hey, you sure you want to follow through with this? You know, you're going to fly into the sky and become one with the moon or possibly live on the moon. Mm. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's immortality. You got to be willing to transform. So maybe the idea of the, of digitizing consciousness, becoming a robot, having your brain uh, live in a vat, like all of these are just examples of sure. If you want immortality, you need to be open to the idea that immortality is transformation mm. and whatever you have now is not what you're going to have. On the moon. It never is. Nope. All right. So there you have it. Uh, you know, you can boil it down to specifics. You can certainly pick apart the details of Chinese symbolism, uh, homophonic uh, puns, uh, other particulars. But, you know, in broader strokes, I think there's a lot of uh, cohesion between these, you know, these universal ideas and questions concerning immortality, modern scientific uh, inquiries into the possibility of immortality and our our hunger for it uh, and these uh, myths and folklore traditions that we've looked at here. Yeah. Oh, and on one final note, if you uh, found this particular topic fascinating and you're interested in, in Asian society, Asian culture, well, you should check out, Asia Society at asiasociety.org. It's the leading educational organization dedicated to promoting mutual understanding and strengthening partnerships among peoples, leaders, and institutions of Asia and the United States in a global context. So we're talking the fields of arts, businesses, culture, education, policy. The society provides insight, generates ideas and promotes collaboration to address present challenges and create a shared future. So check them out at asiasociety.org. They have plenty of educational materials. Materials. There's a museum in New York City, uh, and you can donate and support at that website. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, hey, uh, Chinese mythology is great, but there are these other wonderful uh, wells of, uh, of myth out there, and they're full of immortals as well. You guys should cover them. Well, we, very well we might yeah, if, uh, if there's enough interest out there. I mean, immortality, it's a big subject. It's a big subject. And, uh, yeah, and I, and I have a feeling that just about any major myth cycle is going to have something in there that, that reflects something a, a little differently than what we've looked at here today. So it would be, uh, be, be cool to dive into that if there's enough interest. And in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find various blog posts, videos, links out to our social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. You name it, we're probably on it. And if you want to get in touch with us
1: directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.